Well, good morning. Uh, I'm here to introduce our storyteller for the day. Uh, he is Charlie Gardner, who was our storyteller last week. It's his dad. And so as soon as he comes up, you'll see that's where Charlie gets his charms from. We still won't know where Charlie gets his looks from. <laughs> I warned him about that one. Um, and he gave me full permission. Uh, but seriously, I've really appreciated Carl so much. He has a history before coming to this church of um, being a pastor to, I'm um, being a friend to pastors, and he has continued that habit here. He reached out to me, and he's tried really hard to be an encouragement to me, and I really appreciate that. Turns out it's a near impossible task, but I appreciate his effort. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm encouraged, Carl. Come on up and tell us a story. That wasn't nearly as bad as you led me to believe it was going to be. <laughs> so Peter asked me uh, at some point in the summer if I would uh, be willing to share a story. And the immediate first thought that popped into my mind was I thought of my mother. And uh, she's been gone for several years now. And honestly, for most of those years, I haven't thought about her uh, as often as I guess a lot of people probably think of their departed moms, but this summer I've been thinking about my mom a lot, and uh, I thought I would share a little story about her with you today. The funniest thing uh, triggers my thoughts of my mom when her face and her voice come to my mind. It's um, the smell of blackberries on the vine ripening along the walking paths and along the roads. We have a lot of those around Mercer Island. And when I see the berries ripening in the sun, when I walk over here to the farmer's market after church on Sundays and I smell the peaches in the flats on the farmer's tables, um, I immediately go to her. My mom was a child of the Great Depression. She was frugal, she was self-reliant. And when I was a little boy, I was the youngest of three in the family, so I spent quite a bit of time with her when I was little, and my brother and sister were off at school. She would take me in the summer, in those late summer weeks, out to the woods that were just behind where we lived, out in Shoreline, and we would go picking wild blackberries together. And we'd drive out on Bothell Way to the Yakima fruit stand. We'd buy the peaches and the pears, and she would always buy the blemished ones. She uh, could get them cheaper in bulk, but she swore that they tasted better. So we'd buy those. We'd take an adventure to the thrift store. We'd go to Salvation Army and to Goodwill and look for used mason jars. And we would drive out to the Yupik Farms in Woodenville, which um, it's amazing to me now to see it's all subdivisions, but when I was a little kid, we'd go out there and pick stuff on the farms. We'd pick cucumbers for pickling. And then we'd go home and she would spend days and days in the kitchen, and I was often there with her, run off to play and come back in and in and out, but mom would be in there just working away in the summer heat, and she would be making jam, and canning fruit, making the pickles, and my favorite thing of all was she'd be baking once in a while a fresh berry pie in the oven. I can remember those smells and those flavors just so well, like it was yesterday, and it's a long time ago now. But uh, the road changed for my mom and me pretty soon after that. The summer I turned 10 years old, my dad moved out and my parents divorced. 
And from that point on, I didn't uh, spend as much time with her. She was very badly wounded, and uh, she was pretty deeply depressed. I know now enough about depression to be able to see what was going on in her life. She had to find work and, uh, to support the kids. She didn't really have a marketable skill, so it was not easy to do. And I guess she probably had her hands pretty full just trying to manage things. And I was getting to that age where I was starting to, you know, get out on my own a little bit, a preteen. And I, I sort of more or less raised myself as a teenager. My mom came from a blue-collar family. The men she grew up around were fishermen, they were laborers, they were equipment operators. My brother uh, took that path. He is still today a, an Alaska commercial fisherman, and he has a small um, shipyard over in Ballard where he works on boats. My sister uh, was blue-collar. She uh, took a job right out of high school wrapping meat at Safeway. And she married Marty the Butcher. And they have been happily married and had a great life together for almost 40 years now. But my mom and my siblings uh, have lived within just a few miles of where we grew up their entire lives. And I took a real different path from that. I was the outlier in the family. Uh, I took a lot of part-time jobs, put myself through college, graduated from the University of Washington. And I pursued a career in journalism and uh, the broadcast media business. And that meant uh, big cities. It meant uh, moving around the country for career opportunities. I became a corporate executive. I traveled for a living. I saw quite a bit of the world. Um, and my life was very different from the life that my mom and my brother and sister lived. And as time went on, I became frustrated. And I was kind of resentful toward my mom, frankly. Um, I felt like uh, I had made something of myself and a life that was really different, and I wanted her to be more interested in it. I wanted her to be more curious. I wanted her to ask me more questions about what I did and what my life looked like. And she never did that. And I realize now today she just really wasn't interested in those things. That wasn't who she was. She was always interested in my children. She was a loving grandmother. She adored those kids. And um, even though she was far away, she was attentive and would call and ask and write them cards and letters and send gifts and all that kind of stuff. She was a wonderful grandmother. She was very kind to Kim, my wife. But I never could get over this idea that she's not really interested in me. Um, and a lot of that was because I think at that point in my life, I had a lot of my identity wrapped up in what I was doing. Uh, and she didn't really care, but that stung. So then she aged and became weak and sick. We were living far away. We lived in the Midwest at the time. She was here in Seattle. And I started to feel guilty about not being in a position to do much, about not really being around to spend much time with her. Um, we would talk frequently, and I still just had this big block because I was sort of frustrated and angry towards her, and I didn't know how to express it and I didn't want to hurt her feelings, um, but I wished that our relationship was somehow different, somehow better. I just didn't know what to do, and so I didn't do anything. And it's almost 10 years now since my mom passed away. Those issues never really were resolved for me at that time. And for several years, people would ask me about my mom. I would talk about all the things that our relationship wasn't, and I would talk about what I wished that it had been. Um, 
And over time, I think those regrets have kind of faded away. And now, um, what I'm really excited about is it's more the sweet things that make me think of my mom. Uh, it's those sweet blackberries. It's those canned peaches on the shelf. It's the smell of a pie. Those smells, those flavors speak to me of love. They speak to me of security and of tenderness. And I think I finally get it now. Those things were her love language. I think I've finally reached a point in my life at 61 years old where I'm starting to hear her message again and I'm starting to hear her voice. And I think this is God's mercy. I think it's the Holy Spirit at work because with time in our lives, he can ease away the bitterness and leave us with the sweet. So today I thank God for my mom. I want to tell you about her and I'm thankful for the ways that she did show love to me in the way that she knew how. And I'm thankful for those little sights and smells of summer that bring her back to me today in a very sweet way. So that's my story. And uh, I told Peter I didn't think I could tie it to today's scripture verse, and I can't. So <laughs> I'm just going to shift gears and... Uh, I'm going to read the scripture for you uh, now. So our scripture reading today is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. Uh, I'll be reading from John chapter 8, selected verses in the New American Standard Bible. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger began to write on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. The word of the Lord. Hey, thanks for that great story. Uh, it feels really inappropriate now to tell part two of my introduction, which was something about now we know why he's on radio. But, you know, because of his looks, it was part two. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people shaking heads at me, and I deserve it. <clears throat> Before I go into the sermon this morning, I want to say a word about this all-in Sunday we're doing, and I want to start by reading uh, a quote that I love that I've read many, many times now, but I'm kind of coming back to it uh, full force here for myself. It starts this way. 
It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who, at the best, knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Teddy Roosevelt. I wanted to start with this quote to uh, ask you to think about what we're doing here at the church. <clears throat> I'm not sure if we all fully understand why we are church, why we think this effort and allocation of resources is worth it. Uh, I have been working through that myself, in particular at this time for this church, and I've been really seeking my own heart and seeking um, sort of the mission that feels timely and <clears throat> gives meaning to why we exist as a church. And uh, for me, there's a place I'm landing at about this, but the end product of our church is uh, individuals are individuals who are faithful and convinced in their own heart and mind uh, about the validity and the rele uh, relevance of Christ for themselves personally and in the world. And they know, like Jesus, how to see and love the world, how to embrace the culture, how to enter in without being defined by their own insecurity or feeling threatened by the non-Christian world around them, but really is secure, is well-differentiated, knows how to engage the culture in a competent way, but yet remain faithful to Christ. And so this is sort of my dream for our church, that we're not uh, binary thinkers who think Christian and religion is good and everything else is bad or that's evil and this is where all the light is. Uh, that's not a helpful way to think and it's not true. God really does cause the sun to rise on the good and the wicked. And I want to know how to partake in the rising of that sun on the whole world. And so that's what our church is, uh, I think, moving towards. It's supposed to move towards. But in trying to do that, we have to fight some of the cultural barriers, like the opt-in culture that we are all very familiar with and practice, like that's our religion. The consumerism, the individualism, the... Uh, the pusher, uh, apathy against commitment. Uh, we really are sort of battling this, fighting this battle on uphill terrain here. But we think it's worth it to try to do this and be this as a church. It means that we're going to have to dare greatly. It means we're going to have to uh, prioritize some of the things we're doing at the church. And it means that we're not going to just do the things that are convenient or fun or fit our gift set or whatever, uh, but we are all going to sort of hands to the plow together and work, do some good work over a long period of time and, and see where we are at the end of three years, at the end of five years, at the end of ten years. And so uh, this is an invitation for you to say, yes, I want to be a part of a movement that's afresh engaging this culture in the name of Christ. Not forced, not out of duty only, but from within. Living water flowing from the inside.
And so uh, if that appeals to you in any way, uh, I do ask you to check it out and get practical and tactical about uh, what it means to follow Christ through the local church. Okay? All right. Amen. <laughs> uh, let's get to the sermon. The title of the sermon this week is Light of Life, and that's a phrase out of the passage that was read for us. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And we are going through the book of John, a series called The Son of God. And today, uh, we're going to read a bunch of N.T. Wright together, a guy that I've been rereading, revisiting, uh, really established, and I think one of the more brilliant thinkers and theologians out there in the Christian world. Um, We're also going to read this really famous I Am statement. There are a bunch of them in the book of John. And the book of John, you know, John is about revelation, and so We end the Bible with a book that John wrote called Revelations, but the book of John really is the revelation that Jesus is God. And so to convey that, John has these I am statements. And I am, that phrase, I am, harkens back to God's name uh, for himself, self-designated. When Moses asked him, who are you? God said, I am. That was it, I am. And so we know that nothing else is I am. Everything is becoming or everything was. But God has no beginning and no end. He is reality itself. And so his name is I am. And Jesus is saying that he is God. And that's John's point, that when Jesus says I am, he's equating himself as God. And today he says I am the light, meaning God is divinity is I am the light of the world. I am the light of life. The backdrop to this statement is a whole chapter on sin. If you read the chapter, it's about sin. And the chapter tells a story of Jesus' unique, controversial, and very upsetting response to sin. The religious establishment and even the people under the thumb of the religious establishment could not really understand Jesus' response to sin. It was so radical, so different. It was actually offensive. And here it is. Jesus declaring himself to be God. He says this. He refuses to view sin and people's mistakes and foibles and sense of just uh, people who can't get everything right, who are imperfect, Jesus refuses to use sin as an opportunity to gain power. And that was really upsetting for people because the fuel that the religious establishment needed to run their business was the power they derived from lording other people's sinfulness over them. This was the whole business. If you couldn't make people feel bad and guilty and establish a system by which they come crawling back to you with tithes and offerings and political power so that you can declare them clean, if you gave that up, you had no more business. And that's why they were so upset at this very response. 
But instead, he went a step further, but he abdicates power. Jesus slash God is abdicating power and is using power for the absorption of sin and for helping the sinner. This is who not just Jesus was, but who God is. This is incredibly threatening to everyone. Because if you were claiming to be sinless, you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee or some religious leader, you needed other people to be sinful. Therefore, you have a job. You have a role to play. You have power over them. So you don't lose power. You gain power. The worse people do, the more powerful you become. And on the flip side, if you were a sinner, you had to admit that you couldn't actually help yourself, that you were powerless And that it's only by God's grace, by his work. And that was threatening because now that is an indictment. You can't be sorry enough. You can't repent enough. You can't try to be good enough. None of that adds up to anything. And so both groups, both extremes were dependent on God and his character and his loving nature. Not your lovability. And everybody was confused at the least And in extreme, they try to kill him multiple times because of this. But Jesus comes in here and he says, I am. This is who God is, has always been, and always will be. He is gracious. He loves you. And his his whole deal is to try to help you. And that is a radical message. And he says, follow me. This isn't just one, a one-time incident, but this is emblematic. This is the defining nature of God himself. Now, I got to tell you my story in this. And I thought about words and how to convey this. And I just feel so scared to tell you in some ways. But I have to tell you because in my heart of hearts, I believe Many of you are way worse than me. (laughs) And many of you are way better than me. But we're talking about a very narrow part of the spectrum. We're all really, really different than God. No matter how good we think we are or how bad we think we are, we're all just right there. It's just like siblings bickering. It doesn't matter what we're bickering. We're just bickering. That's all we're doing. So here's how I want to start my story. Most of us, I think, are not aware of of how others experience our face. You know, our facial expressions. Kinesics is the science of nonverbal communication. And scientists tell us that the far majority, like 80, 90% of what we communicate is nonverbal. Body language, facial expression, the direction we're standing, the way our legs are crossed or uncrossed or our toes are pointing, our posture, all of this stuff is shouting at other people long before a word gets, uh, you know, even formed consciously in our brain for it to get to our tongue. And so I've had this problem with my face because it's more expressive than I was ever aware of. And people in general, are feeling stupid and condemned and judged all around me all the time. And I had no idea until I got married. (laughs) And then my wife becomes this mirror to my face, and I don't like what I saw, which made my face even worse. (laughs) I mean, it's funny now 
But face, my facial expression, plus the tone of my voice, plus the words, because I'm good with words, not just the word choice, but the pacing of the words that are coming out of my mouth at her, and it's fueled, all that, face, tone, and words, are fueled by my fears and anger that already pre-existed, Susie, and there's a power dynamic, a differential between Susie and I, my, my positional power over her. So you put all of that together, and the end result is for years and years and years, there is kind of a demeaning, shaming, and this is the part that kills me the most, disconnecting tone, voice, words coming from me. And she's been dealing with this for over 20 years now. You think about that. I hate this about me. And I've thought about it. I've spent lots of money on therapy about this. And I still study this on a regular basis. When I say study, I really mean I like research it. I read about it. I, I get introspective. I talk to other people. I invest to try to figure out what the heck is wrong with my face and tone and words and the fear and the anger and the power dynamic that I use? And it's not just my wife. It's everyone, dog, kids, parishioners, people above me, below me, side of me. It's just who I am. And maybe you don't have that, this specific problem or this extent of a problem, but you have something. Because I really think you're all weird and... And you may think you're you, this unique exception, and to me, you're just the other person. And I may think I'm unique, but I'm just the other person to you. You know, and we're all just got our stuff. But I hate this about myself, and probably more than any other trait, I feel shame about this fact about me. Meaning I feel like it's like a, such a point of disconnection that if you saw this side of me in its full glory, you'd kind of walk away and I would totally deserve your abandonment. That's how I feel about it. And I think about this in such stark contrast to who Jesus is. To understand this story, to appreciate it, you got to get into your imagination here. you got to picture the scene. you got to feel the emotional climate between, you know, in this circle, in this courtyard. And what, what was that feeling? What was in the air when Jesus stoops down and he looks down and he refuses to make eye contact, refuses to engage the nonsense, this, this farce, you know, that was being created to prove a point. I mean, it's just the ridiculous thing. But this is what I do. I hold court all day. I understand this. I understand these guys. Man, this finger is ready to point. It's so ready. It's got all the facts and figures to make you just feel as small as you possibly could. Man, I hate that about myself. Turns out, you know, I just have this one reservoir the self, out of which I react. It's not like I have like a different reservoir. They're all connected. As I said this week to somebody, all my containers are connected. Everything is feeling everything from everywhere else. And then it's got this dang face I got to always manage. Is it possible for me to change this aspect about me? 
without actually changing me? Like, could I just deploy tactics? You know, just behavior modification. Is that enough? And the answer, I think, is no, because wherever I go, there I am, as they say. And my reactions always betray the fact that I am already fearful and depleted and anxious. And if you make a mistake on my watch about something I care about, you may get my face and my tone and my words. I don't like that. So two things we're going to move through today. Jesus and God. Okay. Verse 6 through 8. They were saying this, testing him. So that's the whole motive, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he strained up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, you can uh, conjecture with all the theologians out there about what Jesus was writing and what made him do that. But I know that vaguely, just broadly speaking, I wouldn't have done that. Like, that's not my reaction. If somebody is holding court and asking me for my professional opinion, I get real smart, you know? And I just, I just want to get with the powerful people. That's what I would have done. I would have stood shoulder to shoulder with them and go, you ask a really good question. What is wrong with this woman? That's, that's basically where it would have gone. But here, Jesus does something totally different. And they do this because this is all they know how to do. They're not going against their nature. This isn't some wild scheme out of left field. This came from their heart, from their habit and muscle memory. And this story tells us way more about them. And you see this. This isn't about the woman at all. There's hardly any detail about the woman. All we know is they wanted to test him. They wanted to accuse Jesus. And they're willing to sacrifice a woman. They're ready to stone, murder this woman so they can accuse Jesus. That's exactly what's happening. And they do it masquerading as people who love God, people who love God's law, people who love morality and civil order. But you know, it's not surprising. The word Lucifer, which is the name of the um, lead demon in the Bible, the, the word Lucifer is a beautiful word. Too bad we lost it and no kids are named Lucifer anymore. Uh, but it means light bearer. Bearer of light. That's a great name. I would like to name my you know, son Lucifer. But I'm not going have to have a son, so... Uh, but he's called light bearer because he's the, he's the father of lies. He's the accuser. This is what the devil does. He accuses. And here is what makes the devil's lie so powerful. The devil speaks truth without speaking truth about himself. Without acknowledging the place from where the truth comes. Now, every single thing these uh, leaders are saying are true. 
but they say the truth without acknowledging the place from where the truth comes. And this is where Jesus goes to. We're going to see this later. And this is what makes truth a partial truth and makes it so destructive. So that's, uh, that's something you can take away right there. If you ever think you know the truth, you only know a part of it, and that's more dangerous than lies. Because it's darkness masquerading as light. As long as you don't put yourself in the boat, how are you a part of that equation? What do you contribute? Unless you're also rounding out your body of truth with truth about where you're coming from, if you exclude the conflict of interest potentially that's there, unless you do that, you're doing damage. This is what we learn. But Jesus, where's he coming from? He's coming from a different place than they are. And so we have a very different reaction from Jesus. Not because Jesus is trying to react differently. He's, trying, he's not trying to hold himself together. He's not going, okay, Jesus, be, be cool, be cool, be gracious, calm down, count to ten. He's doing none of that. They just cut him. He bleeds this thing, this response. And it's humble. It's completely unexpected. It's unworried. It's unanxious, right? And it's really thoughtful. And you can tell it's just full of weight and examination of the deeper matters of human nature and life. Just feel the gravitas when he stoops down, looks down. It's so radical. And he goes to this deep, high-quality place. And from that place, words come. Verse 10, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Women, where are they? Now, I try to be biblical and like Jesus, and I try to call my wife woman all the time. <laughs> doesn't go so well. She doesn't like the Bible, I guess. Um, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. He won't condemn because he's not condemned. Do you know that if you feel like you're under condemnation, have some kind of guilt complex, or you're worried about your image, or whatever's going on, you fear condemnation, you're going to condemn people. But he does not condemn. He cannot condemn because from the place he's coming from, he's not going to do that. Why would he do that? You have to have condemnation in you to be condemning. And when he says, go and sin no more, I mean, when I say that, it's filled with conflicts of interest because I get power out of it and I'm, I'm definitely extracting lots of value. I'm not telling you about when I tell you because of where I come from, go and sin no more. So it may or may not land well. But when Jesus says from this place of non-condemnation, go and sin no more, it's completely life-giving. It's transformational. She is never the same again. And I read a story like this, and I so badly want to be like him. I want to be like him. Not because I believe in Jesus or I'm a Christian. It's because look how cool he is. 
Who in society lives up to this way of being with people and navigating people trying to trap him and accuse her and use him and use her and they're filled with their own desire for power and they're just emotionally underdeveloped and spiritually blind and Jesus is able to handle them like this. And I think, I can't do this to save my life. And here Jesus is doing that. And I think, okay, time out. Okay, forget my Christian agenda. Forget the fact that I'm trying to make the Bible true because I want to, you know, have a bias to confirm my faith. Forget all that. Just the story itself. And I think, wow, who is this? Who then is this? Was the common question people always asked. He would do something, say something, and then he'd walk away and you're just left standing there going, who then is this? Who then is this? Normally, you know, it's uh, easier for me to uh, tell a self-deprecating story because I have so many of those. But I have a positive one to add today. Uh, so Susie and I just got into some messy and difficult situations through just life happening at us. And because she was sort of helming this part of our life, Man, I just felt like every day I was battling my fingers and I'm picking up stones in my heart and I just, I just want to lay into her so bad all the time about this stuff. Like it's right there. But I'm in a better place. It's only taken two decades. And instead, I was able, from my heart, I was able to reframe it. And just this week, I looked at her in the eyes and I said, Susie, I'm so thankful for how you've been carrying the load of this because she has and i said man you got us here and we together learned a lot it was all through your leadership and driving of this thing you've handled yourself so gracefully throughout the whole process i'm so proud of you and all the things that you know we learned and the price we paid it was all worth it to get to this moment and i thanked her honest to god she just looked at me tears in her eyes and she said Peter thank you so much for saying that I was feeling so bad just relief genuinely appreciative and relieved I mean for a wife to look at her husband and say thank you for saying that with tears I felt like the hero that was awesome (laughs) it's awesome to be like Jesus once in a blue moon you know but I really felt like that wasn't me That was like the light of Jesus shining through. There was light that led to life. And then I think, man, have accusations and condemnation and picking up stones and pointing fingers, has that ever, because it's fulfilled the truth, per se, but it just doesn't lead to life the same way. It's not the light of life. It's like the light of death. It's light that's actually darkness. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. I am the light of life. You will have the light of life. These aren't statements that Jesus, the Son, the third part of the Trinity is saying. No, this is God himself. There is no Old Testament God and the New Testament God. 
There isn't an angry God, and then there's loving Jesus. It's all the same God. Theologians call this progressive revelation. And in the fullness of time, in Christ, we see the fullness of who and all that God actually is. And until Jesus, we were sort of just guessing at what God might be like. We had these Old Testament stories, and they were partial revelations of God. Until Christ, he is the fullness of God. Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 2.9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And he writes says, If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is look at jesus if you want to know what grief is look at jesus this is jesus this is who jesus is this is who god himself is he will not use our sin and hold it against us he will not try to gain more power through our weakness but he will rather he would heal us and lift us up and fill us with his power this is our god Look at this verse, verse 15. I wanted you to see this. You judge according to what? The flesh. I am not judging anyone. When we judge, from where do we judge? He, he summarized it by saying we judge according to the flesh with all of its insufficiency and inadequacy and insecurity and fear and rage and anger. From that place, that's the flesh. With lust and pride and ego, that's the flesh. We judge from that place according to that. And Jesus says, I don't have that. So I'm not judging anyone. It's not, I don't, I refuse to. It's not even that. It's, I judge no one. I, I don't do that. From where would I do that? If I try to do that, I'm going to end up loving you. I'm going to end up dying for you, trying to redeem you. I love you. That's all I have in me. That's who I am. That's who the Father is. And he writes, says, Jesus doesn't give an explanation for the pain and sorrow of the world. He comes where the pain is most acute and takes it upon himself. Jesus doesn't explain why there is suffering, illness, and death in the world. He brings healing and hope. He doesn't allow the problem of evil to be the subject of a seminar. He allows the evil to do its worst to him. He exhausts it, drains its power, and emerges with new life. This is who God the Father is. And any depiction of God that doesn't align with Jesus' picture of God is off course. Application. The first one is be hopeful for yourself, for others, for two reasons. Because the story of Jesus and the way he treated her and we don't know what happened to her life, but there was a trajectory change. There's a course correction, and that is my story. This is God's promise. If God will remain who he is, and I stay connected to him, I'm not going to be left where I am. He is going to take me because this past story is my future. There's a quote I'm going to skip that's in the sermon notes if you're going to get to that about that. So be hopeful. Uh, second, forsake judgment. If you really believe that you, 
because you claim to be a Christian, you are a bearer of light, then Jesus says, let your light shine. Not shine your light. They're two very different things. Let the true work of God in you, who you are, the gracious, loving, redeemed self, shine through naturally. But if you're shining your light, that's blinding, that's obnoxious, that's offensive. That's you compensating, trying to be a Christian externally because internally you're still raging. You're still judging according to the flesh. That's shining your light because that's your only option. And so you got to ask, as you react to culture, as you react to the discussions we're having about sexual orientation and gender and identity politics and how you navigate the non-Christian world in general, how do you do that well? How do you be that Christian that's letting your light shine, the light of Christ in you? If you claim to know, if you claim to have knowledge, somebody who really has embodied that knowledge, how would that person be? We know how that person would be. That'd be like Jesus. Not like the too smart and too holy, too cool for school you that sometimes you are. Bottom line question, is your light darkness? Or is it actually light that leads to life? We close uh, with this N.T. Wright quote today. I want to invite you to really forsake Religion and all the legalism and the self-righteousness and the power differential that's required to maintain the hierarchy and structure of religion. And think about Jesus. Not only levels everything and he destroys the temple so that we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of us. And he writes says this, in the New Testament, faith is never a religious feeling in general nor simply that which all men know in their hearts. It is never by itself self-authenticating. Faith in the New Testament is a window which exists simply for the sake of what is seen through it. And the window of Christian faith looks out on and only on Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, all quote-unquote religions are both fulfilled and condemned. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we pray right now, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, we pray the religion we carry with us, you would fulfill it and condemn it right now. Do away with it by fulfilling it so that we can be focused on you, Lord Jesus, the finisher and perfecter of our faith, the object, the object of our vision of our desire, of our goals, of who we want to be, who we were meant to be. You have shown us who God the Father is. And we want to be more like him by being more like you. So do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.